Scientist and inventor George Washington Carver developed hundreds of products using peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans, as opposed to peanut butter, as is often claimed. He left his home at a young age to pursue education and earned a master's degree in agricultural science at Iowa State University before slavery was outlawed. He taught and conducted research at Tuskegee University for decades. After his death, his childhood home became the first black national monument honoring a black American. The following short film examines his life. Is the $1,000 Humanitarian Award to Dr. George Washington Carver, renowned Negro scientist. I am not sure that I am worthy of this splendid citation, but I... Uh, I wish to say also that I thank you from the depths of my heart. I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour and every moment of our lives, if we only tune in and remain so. For George Washington Carver, connecting with both God and nature began in this quiet grove in Missouri. His reflections here laid the foundation for his rise from humble beginnings to national prominence as a scientist, educator, and humanitarian. I was born in Diamond Grove, Missouri, about the close of the Great Civil War, in a little one-room log shanty on the farm of Mr. Moses Carver, the owner of my mother. I have the bill of sale of my mother, which shows that she was just a young girl when she was purchased. In 1855, at about age 13, a young girl, Mary, had been purchased by Moses Carver. She later gave birth to two sons, James and George. The harsh reality of George's childhood would leave a lasting impression. There are some things that an orphan child does not want to remember. An orphan child of a race that is considered inferior from every angle. In fact, a number of things we try to forget. The things we try to forget are often the very things that shape our path in life. George Washington Carver was born enslaved into a place and time plagued by guerrilla warfare, and outlaw gangs. Circumstances of his early years are murky, but the tales he was told reflect these turbulent times and had a lasting impact on Carver's self-image. My mother and myself were kuklucked and sold in Arkansas. I was nearly dead with the whooping cough, frail and sick. Mr. Carver sent a horse valued at $300 to purchase us back. Every effort was made to find my mother, but to no avail. Destiny so fixed it that I should know neither father nor mother. Orphaned, sickly, of an outcast race, how might such suffering affect a person's sense of self-worth? haunt him through life. 
Despite these beginnings, Carver's resolve and determination stayed strong. While he was here under the care of Moses and Susan Carver, later as he made his way to Kansas and Iowa, reaching out for an education. And finally, in Alabama, where he achieved prominence. His perseverance left a legacy we can still marvel at today. Without a family of his own, his struggle for belonging faced discouraging odds. All my life I have risen regularly at four o'clock and have gone into the woods and talked with God. Science and religion and all of nature were inseparable from what he called the great creator. His faith in both God and nature helped him endure the hardships he faced throughout his life. Day after day I spent in the woods alone. Alone there, with things I love most, I gather specimens and study the great lessons nature is so eager to teach us all. His knack for studying and healing plants brought him notoriety as the plant doctor among friends and neighbors. Learning from nature and teaching others came to define his mission in life. Good morning, class. Good morning. So, I looked at the sweet potato and I said, sweet potato, sweet potato, what are you? The sweet potato... From a child, I had an inordinate desire for knowledge. Nothing is so damaging as ignorance. Versatile food source. The knowledge Carver hungered for was not easy to come by. It took self-determination to seek an education in a state where it was once against the law even to teach blacks how to read or write. Following the Civil War, Missouri began allowing blacks to be taught in public schools, often segregated, and all too often with limited resources. Young George was not welcome in the white-only school in the community of Diamond Grove. Segregation and racial prejudice confronted Carver constantly throughout his lifetime in his search for learning, in his work, in his relationships. Yet time and again, his resilience triumphed over adversity. Mr. and Mrs. Carver encouraged me to secure knowledge, helping me all they could. My only book was an old Webster's Elementary spelling book. I would seek the answer here without satisfaction. I almost knew the book by heart. My very soul thirsted for an education. As we lived in the country, no colored schools were available. With no school in Diamond that would accept him, George decided to move from the Carver family farm to live in the town of Neosho. He knew there was a school for black students that he could attend. It took fortitude for a young boy to leave his home behind, walking eight miles by himself in a country hostile, even violent toward people of African descent. This move from the Carver farm to Neosho was a turning point in his life. Good, write that down. Here he experienced his first African-American teacher in the person of Stephen Frost, 
a man with little training who had learned to read just six years earlier. In Neosho, he found other African-American role models, like Andrew and Mariah Watkins, who gave him a home, who helped build up his self-confidence. Aunt Mariah introduced him to her church congregation and helped strengthen Carver's faith in God. And she motivated George to go out and teach his people, instilling within him a sense of purpose and commitment to the black community. Learning all he could from Frost, Carver decided to reach out beyond his current circumstances. He later recalled that this time at the school simply sharpened his appetite for more knowledge. The schools for colored children in Kansas were better than the ones in Missouri. Left Watkins home for Fort Scott, Kansas, with a family who were moving out there. In search of better educational opportunities, George set out on his second move from home and into the unknown. I walked much of the time as they were heavily loaded. Remained in Fort Scott until they lynched a colored man drug him by our house and dashed his brains out onto the sidewalk. As young as I was, the horror haunted me, and does even now. I left Fort Scott and went to Olathe, Kansas. Olathe, Kansas, Payola, Minneapolis, Kansas City. Still wandering, Carver seemed in search of both an education and a purpose for himself in the world. In a place called Poverty Gulch, he managed to finish high school. New friends encouraged his faith in God. And finally, in 1884. The thirst for knowledge gained the mastery and I sought to enter Highland College at Highland, Kansas. His application accepted, he moved to Highland, only to encounter more prejudice and another grave disappointment, once they saw who he was. Was refused because of my color. Rejection like this often tested his character and challenged his hopes and dreams. After a few years of homesteading, Carver's restless search led him to Winterset, Iowa. Here, newfound church friends encouraged him to pursue his artistic talents and persuaded him to enroll in Simpson College in Iowa. Here he lived simply, even poorly. Attempting to run a laundry for my support, I lived on prayer, beef suet, and cornmeal. Modesty prevented me from telling my condition to strangers. Carver gained the respect of friends who accepted him into campus life. I shudder to think what might have happened if Simpson had closed its doors when I came hungering and thirsting for an opportunity. They made me believe I was a real human being.
My paintings are my soul's expression of its yearning and question in its desire to understand the work of the great creator. Carver's art teacher, Miss Etta Budd, appreciated his love of nature, but worried about his prospects of earning a living as a black artist. Aware of his passion for nature, she encouraged him to pursue a degree in science instead. He soon enrolled at Iowa Agricultural College in Ames, where her father taught horticulture. As the first African-American in the college's history, he initially met with prejudice and intolerance. At first, he was denied housing in the dorms and was forced to eat in the basement with the hired help. Despite these challenges, Carver pressed on. His knowledge and love of plants coincided with the interest of such teachers as Lewis Pamel in a scientific approach to agriculture. He was the best collector I ever had in the department or have ever known. By 1896, Carver had become the first African-American graduate and faculty member of Iowa State. His hard work and accomplishments there brought him an offer that changed his life. At Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, Booker T. Washington was promoting opportunities for blacks through education. Learning of Carver's work in the growing field of scientific agriculture, Washington invited him to join the faculty at Tuskegee. Although Tuskegee was located in the Deep South, where Carver faced ever greater racism and violence, he was attracted by Booker T. Washington's vision. It has always been the one great ideal of my life to be of the greatest good to the greatest number of my people. Tuskegee offered Carver new opportunities to share his knowledge in both the classroom and the field. But the challenges ahead were formidable. When my train left the golden wheat fields and the tall green corn of Iowa for the acres of cotton, nothing but cotton, my heart sank a little. Not much evidence of scientific farming. Everything looked hungry. The land, the cotton, the cattle, the people. Decades of sharecropping and tenant farming had bound the black farmers to white landowners, as well as to poor eroded soils, simple tools, and outdated techniques. Initially, Carver's goal was to teach a more scientific approach using up-to-date methods and machinery. He soon learned that the poverty of the farmers would keep them from getting modern equipment. So his approach evolved to simpler means of conservation and crop rotation, methods that were more easily within their reach. When he arrived at Tuskegee, Carver found a school still being built and an agriculture department waiting to be shaped. I went to the trash pile of Tuskegee Institute and started my laboratory with bottles, old fruit jars, and any other thing I found that I could use. As with all the difficulties he faced, Carver pushed on. 
Over time, his lab, like his experiments, grew in sophistication and in scope. Carver's new position brought him closer to achieving his vision of helping his people. But the new position also brought with it obligations that he found frustrating. Booker T. Washington was running a large and complex institution, and he expected Carver to administer the agricultural department and to oversee its daily operation. Carver preferred experimenting and teaching rather than counting chickens, writing milk reports, and ordering supplies. When it comes to the matter of managing, you are wanting in ability. My work is of such a nature that I cannot do it without help. Yet despite bureaucratic disagreements, the two men had profound respect for each other. You are a great teacher, a great lecturer, a great inspirer of young men and old men. That is your forte, great ability in original research. I shall always feel kindly to your work and shall continue to be loyal to Tuskegee and its interests. Carver spoke a language the poor farmer could understand. Through his illustrated agricultural bulletins, he showed them edible plants where others only saw weeds. Acorns and vines could become food for their animals. Wild fruits could be canned and preserved. Fertilizers could be created from waste. Show me a poor lot of land, and I'll show you a poor farmer. I came here for the benefit of my people. No other motive in view. My idea is to help the man farthest down. To drive home the idea of nature's bounty, Carver often focused on an individual crop in his experiments and his teachings. The cow pea. The sweet potato. And most famously, the peanut. I do not know of any one vegetable that has such a wide range of food possibilities. Carver's work with these crops led to byproducts beyond food. Dyes, paints, industrial products, and medicines were all outcomes, along with a massage oil for polio victims. My last patient today was one of the sweetest little five-year-old boys who three months ago they had to carry in my room. When I had finished the massage, he walked across the floor without any support. As a way of reaching out to farmers beyond the campus, Booker T. Washington began supporting Carver's supervision of farmer conferences. As Carver carried his message into the countryside, Washington expanded this outreach with greater funding. I think your idea of fitting up a wagon to serve as a traveling agricultural school is a most excellent one. Washington's and Carver's educational goals were in agreement. This new Jessup wagon brought demonstrations of tools and techniques to thousands of area farmers. Tuskegee's traveling school was so successful that it was adopted nationally by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as part of its own outreach program.
George Washington Carver was becoming a nationally recognized teacher and researcher. Following Booker T. Washington's death in 1915, Tuskegee continued to encourage Carver's tours to colleges and fairs. Carver traveled widely to promote racial understanding with the sponsorship of the Commission on Interracial Cooperation and YMCA. And yet he himself could never escape the legal segregation and more personal discrimination and racism that permeated American society. A terrifying example of this brutality occurred years earlier in Raymer, Alabama. In 1902, Carver journeyed in the company of famous white female photographer, Frances Johnston. Citizens were incensed. A mob gathered in violent protest, shouting murderous threats and firing guns in the air. I had the most frightful experience of my life there, and for one day and night, it was a very serious question indeed as to whether I would return to Tuskegee alive or not, as the people were thoroughly bent upon bloodshed. I have never seen people so enraged. Even at the peak of his fame, Carver, like all African Americans, endured Jim Crow, discrimination and racism. Although invited to speak at hotels from Montgomery, Alabama to New York City, he was forced to use the servant's entrance and was expected to eat in the kitchen with the hired help. Provided a ticket for a Pullman car, he instead had to ride in a segregated coach. Nevertheless, Carver continued to promote interracial understanding by his own example as well as his words. Fear of something is at the root of hate for others, and hate within will eventually destroy the hater. The fame and respect that grew from his work continued to spread. His opinions on both agriculture and racial relations were often sought after. In an era of great prejudice and even animosity towards blacks, Carver seized a rare opportunity to participate in an official proceeding in the nation's capital. All right, Mr. Carver, we will give you 10 minutes. Mr. Chairman, I have been asked by the United Peanut Growers Association to tell you something about the peanut and about the possibility of its extension. As an agricultural expert, he had been called to support a tariff a protecting southern peanut farmers from foreign competition. And the peanut comes in, I think, as one of the most remarkable crops that we are all acquainted with. A perfectly balanced ration with But even in Congress, he faced insults and racist remarks. And the peanut. Do you want... Do you want... Uh, Watermelon to go with that? <laughs> Carver remained confident, knowledgeable, and inspiring. Of course, if you want a dessert, that comes in very well. But you know that we can get along pretty well without dessert. The recent wars taught us that. The committee was captivated and transformed by his manner and the depth of his knowledge. It is an exceedingly valuable product, is it not? We are just beginning to learn the value of the peanut. 
Yes, this is very interesting. I think his time should be extended. Well, of course, we would have to have protection for them. That is, we could not allow other countries to come in and take our rights away from us. You have rendered the committee a great service. Go ahead, brother. Your time is unlimited. You have seen, gentlemen, just about half of the uses of the peanut. I think he's entitled to the thanks of the committee. Once again, George Washington Carver faced derision and disrespect and rose above the struggle to a newfound triumph. This testimony in Washington launched him onto the national stage and led to his being called the Peanut Man. More importantly, he became a powerful symbol of African-American potential and achievement. He now stood as an inspiration to the nation as he promoted conservation of nature's resources as well as interracial cooperation. He extended his work and public appearances through the Great Depression and into the beginning of World War II. Throughout his life, he particularly appealed to young people who were drawn by his charisma, his knowledge, and his passionate spirit. Many continued to correspond with him through his later years, including a group he often called My Boys. From the inspiration that you give to me, I reached to higher heights than I ever thought. Carver's love of nature, his love of people, and his spirituality continued to inspire others long after his death in 1943. As Booker T. Washington once said, George Washington Carver's greatest strength was as a teacher. He exemplified the power of having a vision, a determination to succeed, and a mission to help others. He taught through the way he lived and continued to achieve, even in the face of prejudice, racism, and violence. Powerful messages he taught to the man farthest down and to those higher up. One of the highest recognitions of his work came in the midst of World War II, with America's troops as well as its society still segregated by race, Congress voted to honor his achievements by establishing the George Washington Carver National Monument. Ceremonies in 1953 dedicated the Carver Farm in Diamond, Missouri as the first national park to honor an African American. No individual has any rights to come into the world and go out of it without leaving behind him distinct and legitimate reasons for having passed through it. Through the examples of his struggles and his triumphs, George Washington Carver has left us a legacy for learning and for living. the further anyone gets away from themselves, the greater will be their success in life. You know, self is a little bit of a thing. That little word, I, terrible eye disease, one of the worst eye diseases that was ever known. I should say the uh, chief purpose of scientific training is to find truth. 
Ye shall know truth, and the truth shall make you free. There is nothing more destructive to development than ignorance. And ignorance is simply, I don't know. Sometimes it is wise not to look for too much appreciation. The main thing is to be sure you're right and go ahead, regardless of whether people appreciate it or whether they don't.